All right, well, hey, listeners, my name is Aaron Gray, and I'm the preaching pastor at Sound City Bible Church. I am Ibarz Uchkun, the assistant rabbi at uh, Restoration Synagogue in Seattle. I'm James Raymond. I'm the director of the Almeida Initiative. Yeah, and so uh, if you're listening to this, this is kind of a, a joint project between uh, our organizations. And uh, just a little backstory, the, the reason why this came up. So the most recent Sunday at Sound City Bible Church, we're going through the book of Acts, and I preached on Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem Council, where all these church leaders have to get together and figure out, hey, there's all these non-Jewish people who want to follow Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, who want to be a part of the family. What do we do with them? And, uh, you know, the decision is made in Acts chapter 15. Hey, Gentile people remain Gentiles. They get to be adopted into the family of God. They're not obligated to the Torah in the way that the Jewish people are. And they gave some, just a few specific rules or some things to follow. Number one is no meat sacrificed to idols, no meat that has been strangled or still has the blood in it, and then sexual immorality. And so I unpacked all of that and really that, that it raised this question about, well, are they just picking and choosing? Just picking and choosing which things from the Old Testament to apply to these Gentile followers of Jesus. And I really address that question kind of head on because in our culture, people accuse followers of Jesus of picking and choosing what verses in the Bible to follow. Now, James and his family uh, happened to be in attendance that Sunday, and James came up to me afterwards, and, and James, maybe you can explain a little bit more, too, just your own thinking, because you work a lot with um, the Muslim community in the Seattle area as the director of the Almeida Initiative, so it triggered a kind of a specific question for you, too, so maybe explain that. Right, right, right. So um, often, this is something that comes up regularly for me, right, because in the Muslim world, there's a whole specific set of laws, which is not identical to kosher, but it's very similar to kosher. One difference would be Camel is not kosher in the Jewish law, but it's halal in Islam. But um, I don't think I would eat camel regardless. That doesn't sound I'd, I'd, at least, I'd at least try it once. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, I don't know. It might be good with some paprika. I don't. Yeah, it's, the, the, there's, a, there's a restaurant in northern Australia uh, where they have an endemic camel problem that um, serves like camel lasagna. I don't know, I'd try it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Not everything, there's there's definitely not everything new under the sun. Yeah, that is right. a new thing under the <laughs> sun. <That's right. laughs> so, um, so uh, kind of hearing that, I, I thought, okay, well, this is something that comes up a lot for me. right? I, pr- more than most, I'm interacting with this on a at least weekly basis. Yeah. People are like, okay, well, why, the Bible says all these things, yet you do not keep these laws, you wear clothes made of mixed fabrics, uh, you don't plow your fields with two with right. one type of crop. Uh, you you eat shell. I don't eat shellfish, but I have no moral objection to eating shellfish. Right. Um, and okay, you're just picking and choosing, right? So you'd want to impose these moral laws on people from the Bible while ignoring these laws. So I thought, well, since you talked about doing a follow up in the sermon, I thought yeah. uh, we should we should we should talk and we should get. Uh, um, Ibar, Lord Ibar's on Lord Ibar's. <laughs> Khan of the great meme C. Yes. Um, I, I am the Lord of memes. Um, uh, because, one, he's, the, he's a rabbi at a Messianic Jewish synagogue, and he's a great time. So, yes. Uh, well, and so maybe for, for people at Sound City Bible Church, you're familiar with Rabbi Matt. He's come and spoken a few more times. So you work with Rabbi Matt. I do. But maybe you could just share even just a little bit of a brief 
a synopsis of your own personal journey because uh, being raised in the Muslim world, coming to yeah. faith in Jesus, landing in a messianic Jewish context, it's a it's a pretty unique set of uh, circumstances. And James, like, we need to get Ibar's involved in this conversation too, as someone who can kind of think follower of Jesus, Muslim world, living right. in the secular Seattle area. So yeah, could you just share kind of briefly a little synopsis of your story? I've been trying to do this because Matt's pressuring me to write a book about it mm. um, because Matt's writing a book. So when Matt does something, I automatically get pressured <laughs> to do it as well. Uh, love you, buddy. <laughs> um, I got, I got, let me back up a little bit. I was born in Turkey uh, in 1974 um, my parents decided to flee creeping communism uh, in Turkey and, you know, started looking in different countries of places that they could settle down and raise their family. Were your parents Muslim? Yes. Okay. Yeah. My father's from Afghanistan and my mother's from Turkey. Um, and my father is of Turkic background, so he was able to walk from, that's a whole nother story, walk from Afghanistan to Turkey and wow. met my mom. Um, and then uh, he chose America. And we settled here um, and we lived in central New Jersey uh, and I was a Muslim kid growing up around Irish and Roman Catholics, uh, felt very alienated and isolated, turned away from religion altogether because I sensed the hypocrisy uh, that was underlying in the people who I interacted with who were Muslims um, and also felt disconnected from the Catholic community. Uh, I did actually go to Catholic school, so I had like a firsthand look at uh, Catholicism, and I decided none of it was for me. So I did what um, most teenager, teenagers do, uh, especially in the 90s. I, I turned to Guns N' Roses. <laughs> and, <laughs> the gospel of Axl Rose. That's right. Um, <laughs> and Slash, his apostle. That's right. <laughs> that's true. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of ran my life into the ground doing the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing, and then I wound up um, looking for answers. Um, I had people in my life who were Christians at the time um, who I started asking questions of and uh, kind of opened the door for me to be open to talking about Jesus. Um, one day somebody invited me to a Messianic synagogue um, and it was at that synagogue where I actually felt the Lord, I heard the Lord speak to me um, because they were talking about in 1997 Saddam Hussein launching scuds into Tel Aviv. And the rabbi said, Saddam wants to destroy Tel Aviv, but Yeshua won't let him do that. And I was looking down at the floor. We didn't have cell phones back then. Um, and I heard Yeshua say to me, I said, who's Yeshua? And he said, I'm Yeshua. And I didn't even pick my head up. I just felt the presence of God around me. It was dark in the room, but light around me. It was like a spotlight had been shining on me. Wow. And... Um, you know, that was the moment where I realized that what I had been looking for was this God who revealed himself to me. And it was no doubt in my mind that it was God. Mm. I mean, when your soul has questions, right? Um, when God shows up, there are answers. And it was, it was clearly, um, I guess you'd call it a power encounter. Yeah. So, uh, Holy yeah. Spirit showed up. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, you know. I didn't look up because I was afraid. <laughs> right. Right. So I didn't look up, but um, it was it was that real. It was like you sitting next to me or James sitting across from me. It was it was that intimate and close. So I That's still amazing. get goosebumps. Still get That's that. awesome. <laughs> so you then uh, uh, walking with the Lord, 
uh, now become rabbi. You're leading and ministering here in the Seattle area. Yes. And so you have interactions with obviously the Muslim community and you Mm -hmm. have interactions with secular Seattleites. And then you have interactions with Christians or in then even specifically Messianic Jewish Christians. It's a broad spectrum. So you have, yeah, you have a really wide spectrum. So um, I have a handful of follow-up questions from people at Sound City Bible Church. We can kind of interact with these as, as we go. But one of the things at the very, very end of the teaching, one of my points of application, and I was going long, I wish I had more time to kind of flesh this out. So one of the initial questions, and I got it from a couple different people, is explain more about this last point I made to say we can't simply rely upon the line, well, the Bible says. So when I'm talking with a particularly a more secular, uh, kind of your just your general secular, whether it's atheist or agnostic, uh, spiritual but not religious type of person, to say, well, the Bible says this, it, it, it almost, uh, for them, they probably wouldn't say this, most people haven't said this, but there's a, I don't care, right? Or, or that doesn't really bear the kind of authority that it would when I'm talking to someone else who is a committed follower of Jesus. If I'm, if I'm doing pastoral counseling and someone's making decisions in their life that they shouldn't or they're living in a way, I can say, hey, listen, the Bible says this or here's what scripture teaches and that carries a different type of authority. Sure. But when you're talking with a non-believer, the Bible says doesn't carry that same kind of authority. So James, what's, what are your thoughts on, on just kind of that discussion topic as, as just, just saying the Bible says? Well, I think... What I'd advise, now I'd make a caveat here, that you saying the Bible says definitely does not have any authority in someone's life. So what I, how I'd approach this is read them the words and then explain it. Because the words themselves do have authority, whether they acknowledge mm-hmm. it or not, That's right? That's a good point. And, yep. and, there's, and there's a power to kind of unleashing that. Yeah. So I try and incorporate that as much as I, as much as I can. When so I'm Bible open and say, let's actually read the text that, as it's written right there. Right, right, okay. right, right. So... Um, I'll kind of actually explain it to somebody, right? right, right so rather than, be, so I think th- there's two elements to this, right? Is God has spoken and has authority, but they don't have access to that authority in the same way you do, and you want to make sure that you're presenting it to the way in a way that's clear, right? They don't have access to that authority because they have not yet. Um, had the scales pulled off of their eyes and been filled with the Holy Spirit to understand it. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yes, but but also in the sense that they just haven't really interacted with it in any serious capacity, okay. right? They yeah. can't they can't even say they're not even saying yes or no to the Bible. They're taking a sort of version they've got from TV about it, sure, right? And you want to make sure you're clarifying what it actually says. That's good. Not making it more palatable, but clarifying. That's good. Yeah. What would you say? I mean, uh, on that, just real quickly. Um, yeah, so that would be a great example of you can't just say, well, the Bible says and then just say it, but instead open up the Bible and let the words of the scripture, divinely inspired words, let the words of the scripture actually do it, not just you saying, well, the Bible says. So that's that's really helpful, James. Uh, but also, and, and also what I highly recommend doing, if you have a contentious point with somebody, rather than just going to the sort of out of context verse they may be quoting, be like, hey, I, I want to answer this question. But I think it would really help you to have an overview of the whole 
Christian worldview here. Right. Could right. I buy you coffee? Can I give you an overview right. of like the whole system here? Right. So you can have a better framework for this. The guy that I, I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, I mentioned that we sat down for coffee and the first thing that came out of his mouth is, why do Christians hate gay people? I said, you know, I said, we don't. I'm commanded by Jesus not to hate anyone. Right. But I said, if you want to talk about sexual ethics, we can get to sexual ethics, but that's one piece of a much larger picture. And so I said, we like, it's like saying, you know, we need to talk about the windshield of the car. I'm like, it's very important. The windshield is very important. Sexual ethics is very important, but we got to talk about the chassis and the frame and the mm. engine and the transmission sure. and the wheels and all sure. these other things before then we can talk about this other piece. So what were you going to say? I mean, I always try to take a relational approach to it. Um, you know, kind of like what you were saying, uh, the hard part about trying to pin somebody down or being pinned down is everyone wants an answer in the moment, mm-hmm. right? They want the very simple snapshot the, answer. The three-minute BuzzFeed video that explains it all. Right. You know what I mean? Or, you know, some kind of – they're either looking for inspiration or they're looking for answers or they're looking for a way to undermine. So um, I think it's important to identify which one of those that they're actually looking for. And, um, you know, I think it's important – to always tie personal experience into a passage, right? So um, for me, uh, especially with my background, sure, um, being able to look at what they're actually trying to say, like what are they actually asking mm. you, right? So the, the question is probably grounded in something more personal to them. Right. They're not necessarily, it's not just the abstract. They actually have a, a family member who is gay or, uh, you know, somebody who's, you know, made some decisions with their lives that wouldn't line up with the biblical teaching and they're looking for a, a, a justification or something. There's nothing more Jewish than answering a question with a question, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's just really nothing more Jewish yeah. than that. So, uh, you know, why do you hate gay people? Well, why do you think I hate gay people? <laughs> you know? Um, That's also very uh, 90s postmodern David Foster Wallace. <laughs> so, yeah, well, he got it from the Jews. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, using some discernment as a believer to say, um, you know, I obviously sense that there's tension in this question for you. Um, and I'd like to know where you're coming from is, is really just a great way to get to the heart of where the person is and then having like a real discussion. Right. So the hard part about saying, well, the Bible says the scripture says, right. Uh, we don't say the Bible says we say the scripture says, because I think it's a little bit more disarming. (laughs) Um, you know, it's not, yeah, Doesn't particularly in our culture, yeah. Right, right. The Bible says, the Bible says, right. scripture is a little bit of an, even just a little slightly different word that, right. you know, I've even, I've even, if I really want to trip somebody out, I've said like, well, the sacred writings say, right, like, right, that right. blows their minds. Oh. Right, right. So I think the hard part is people have a set paradigm and they want an answer um, and they usually want an answer that fits into their worldview. And um, the way that you kind of sidestep that agenda behind the question, right? Because when you had your conversation with the fellow who yes. was questioning you, um, he obviously wanted to just walk out of that room. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't there, but to think that, well, all Christians hate gay people. Yeah. And I'm right, right? Like, I, I'm justified in my, in my questioning. So in that moment, I said, okay, let's, let's just start with a few basics. I said, do you believe that there is a God? And so that was the starting point. Right. Generally, yes. Okay, so if you believe there is a God, do you believe that we can know what that God is like? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think, if, if that God, if we can know what that God is like, do you believe that he created all things? If we believe he created all things, does he have a right 
to say how things should operate. I mean, I'm just trying to go way, I tried to zoom way out because he's asking about something that comes mm -hmm. 15, 20 steps further down the road. It's not unimportant. Sexual ethics is, is quite important, right. but it's not the starting point. Right. It is interesting, and I wonder if you guys would have an answer to the question. I had an, another um, person emailed in a question about trying to speak to her, her granddaughter about you know, a biblical worldview, but the granddaughter is being raised by uh, a lesbian couple. Right. I wonder why, if you guys have any thoughts on like, why is it that these issues of sexuality, particularly in our day and age, but maybe kind of throughout all of human history, why they always seem to be kind of the tip of the spear? There, nobody's really coming and, and questioning me about just war theory. You know, that's right. not, I mean, maybe some people would kind of right. get to that, but it seems like at least in our day and age, 90% of this relates to who and how can I, you know, who can I touch and, and in what ways? Right. Why, why is it that you think that, that issues of human sexuality are so, so much at the forefront of all of these conversations and why they're so um, connected to our emotions even? I think what's going on there is, is the way Romans 1 framed it is fundamentally about idolatry, right? And, and I think we're missing a big part of the conversation unless we see it that way. Because when we think about every song that's on the radio, every movie, what is the message? You have this void in your soul, and the only thing that can fill it is that one special person. Yeah, the, right? you, the you complete sure. me dynamic. Right, right, right. right, right, right. So... Um, we need to push against that that, that uh, message as Christians, not just for the gay person, but for the straight person yeah, too. That's true, right? So if we if we only push against something like homosexuality, what we're all we're saying to them, without disarming that worldview first, is that special completing love. You can't have that, right? Right. Instead of right. saying, no, they're deluded <laughs> in this. This isn't going to fulfill them. Neither is it going to fulfill you. Only God can fulfill you, right? right. Which is, uh, it, which is why some of Paul's teachings, let's say in First Corinthians, you know, six and seven and stuff about s the issues of singleness, were so radical and revolutionary in his day, and they're still radical and revolutionary in our day. The fact that that right. Jesus, the Messiah, in his earthly life, lived as a celibate single man, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul never married, never had children, and lived full and whole, complete lives, that biblical teaching actually elevates singleness. We've probably done a disservice in American Christianity by elevating marriage maybe to an, ex an excess at times. So I think that's really good. It's, it's you know, it's, it's we need God first, and romantic love and friendships and other things like that have their place, but they're not ultimate. What do you think, Ibars, as far as wh why does it always seem to start or end or revolve all around sexual ethics? Well, I think, you know, you talked earlier about war theory. And when you do read through the scripture, there's some things that are, you know, odd to the human experience, right? Like mixing fibers or, right. you know, uh, blood sacrifices or... Or, um, the the ones that always get me are the ones in uh, uh, Deuteronomy about like mold, or Leviticus about mold, like cleansing out mold from yeah, the house. Like, why yeah, is that? Yeah, I got good answers for that. Oh, good. Yeah, because <laughs> mold is bad, right? Right. <laughs> Breathe mold, you die. Um, and I think the reason why people generally circle back to sexuality is because everyone is created to be sexual, so it's everyone's common experience. Mm. Um, you know, you might not be able to associate with some of the other more nuanced parts of the scripture, um, but when it really boils down to it, we were created to procreate. Mm -hmm. 
and we all have sexual desires and urges. Sure. And uh, part know, of that original creation mandate in Genesis one: be right. fruitful and, and multiply, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I have six kids; they have <laughs> subdued me. <laughs> um, so, I think it's just uh, um, first of all, like a common point, right? Sure. Like most people are saying, "All right, you know, let me do the math here in my head." Um, I don't understand why, um, if I'm attracted to, you know, somebody of the opposite sex, why isn't it okay for people of the same sex to be attracted? And, you know, right before, I remember when we kind of went through this, um, uh, it was an election cycle, I think it was in 2012, where we just kind of went through this this, uh, round where all these states were legalizing gay marriage, Mm -hmm. and and it just kind of started the the, um, snowball on all of that. Um, and people were saying things like, well, love is love, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know... Um, love wins. Love wins, or, or like an equal sign, right? Like calling for equality. And the hard part to interject to them in that is the reason why God looks at those things differently, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why does he look at those things differently? Why, why are those things um, good or bad for you, right? And I think... Um, Also, you were saying traditionally, I mean, this is the kind of spiritual answer, right? The easiest way to corrupt the soul is to get it to sear its consciousness. And the easiest way for someone to sear their consciousness is to engage in repeated sexual immorality. Mm. So um, pornography will sear your conscience. Um, uh, You know, multiple sexual... lust of the heart. Right, lust of the heart. You know, all of these things um, feed into searing your consciousness and there's no... Um, easier way for the adversary to separate you from the love of God than by going right for the jugular and going for your consciousness. Mm. I would, I think too, um, you know, the, the very specific question that this person asked me of why, why do Christians hate gay people? I mean, we know, so, so let's, let's just pretend for a moment that a gay person is my enemy. I don't think they are, but let's just pretend. What was Jesus' commandment to his followers for someone who is your enemy? To love them. Now, you glue that on with Paul's teaching in Ephesians about the human enemies are not our enemies. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual authorities and principalities. So for me, as a follower of Jesus and and reading uh, the entirety of the scripture, if I am to look at another person who thinks differently, believes differently, judges me for my beliefs, they, at the end of the day, though we might have an oppositional relationship, they're not my enemy. There's a greater enemy, and I'm called to love them, care for them, and even, dare I say, uh, uh, serve them and care for them in practical ways that don't violate. So so a a good example would be um, having uh, gay and lesbian friends or, or even family members for me. I will defend them against any and all bullying or or harm or, and we need to be vocal about those things. But then at the same time, I will not perform a wedding ceremony for right. a gay couple because that is uh, a violation of, uh, well, first of all, my, my conscience, but what I see to be in line with biblical teaching. So, so I think at times we, we've, we've just gotten into this oppositional, they're my enemy sort of framework. Instead of viewing someone who doesn't believe as I do, who doesn't hold to the same scriptural principles as I do, they're not the enemy. In fact, uh, Paul, is it in First Timothy or Second Timothy, says that they've been ensnared by the enemy. They're actually right. a, a captive who is worth my, my love and my service and my care. So I think that um, 
at times it's been kind of too all or nothing. James, I'm curious for you, though, in interacting with people in the Muslim community, and Ibar's for you as well, there actually is more of a shared common understanding about sexual ethics. Correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it's a little bit different in a place like Seattle, but there is actually some more common ground that we as followers of Jesus would have with Muslims different from just the general secular society. Right, right, right. And definitely don't assume that if you're meeting a Muslim. It's true. Because... Some of them are rebelling against their more fundamentalist upbringing. Sure. Or right, 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 right. So you, you'll certainly you certainly ha- have a wide range of spectrums. But yes, you will you will have that um, that shared, mostly shared sexual ethic, except that marriage is looked on a little differently. Right. In okay. The, in the Bible, we see marriage and sex as this kind of joining of souls in a way that just it should be inseparable yeah the two shall become one flesh doesn't just mean physical bodies it's the it's the it's like a whole life union it's all of who you are right and and i love talking about this because when somebody's like before somebody is in a relationship and they want to be in a relationship that sounds ridiculous sex is this joining of souls with gluing people together and then when the relationship's over, it's like, oh, I know, that's so true. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it seems ridiculous on the outset, but then you know, think about this. You know, you looked at your wife in the eyes, and then a little person came out eventually, right? It's, right. It, it's, it, it is ridiculous. It's that, profound, right? It is. I've said it before, too, like in sermons, like we're, we've been handed like dynamite from God that we – that two people could join together in such a way as to create another human being. That's insane. Right. That's just wild. Anyways, I cut you off, man. Right. So, so, we, so, so you know, while the culture may want to make us feel kind of ashamed and antiquated in our views, well, let's, let's actually think about this for a minute and, and, and think about how ridiculous actually, how people are made actually is, right? It's ridiculous. Right. Uh, so... Kids, if you're listening to this, ask your parents after the podcast is done. <laughs> <laughs> um... So, uh, so, so, why, so the the Bible's view on that is very is 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 different in a way. But there's a sort of surface level. Yes, uh, monog- marriage, mm-hmm. sex outside of marriage is bad. Um, yet the pushback we're going to get there is okay. You have all these rules which you can rationalize away, and you can see, see this. But you eat pork. You. You do all well, these. Ibars doesn't. But. Ibars doesn't. Yeah. No, I do not. <laughs> um, but you, you know, you as a you as a Christian eat pork, and the Bible says not to eat pork. Therefore, you know, you're a hypocrite, and that sure. and that hypocrisy is going to be thrown at us in two different directions, right? From the Muslim, right. it's you should not be eating pork. And we want you to join us in this, um, and from the secularists, okay, well, you shouldn't. We don't care about sexual morality, and neither should you. Um, we want you to join us here, right? right. So we've been, we've been, we're being called on our alleged hypocrisy here from two different directions. Two, yeah, we're being pulled in two different directions. Could we pivot to that? And maybe Ibar's, you could, you could kind of take point on that. Just again from the, the messianic uh, perspective. And <clears throat> obviously, Matt and I have sat and had lots of long conversations about this. I'm very mm-hmm. thankful for his insight, and I get to push back on him on things, and he pushes back on me on things. But just that idea of like, okay. Pork, like, like maybe we just stick with the food laws. Let's just stick with that. You know, the 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 objection of hypocrisy for someone such as myself, and I've had the Ancestry.com test done. I don't have any Jewish DNA. I don't have any Jewish blood. I'm not obligated to keep those kosher food laws. Um, I could choose, if I felt the Lord led me to, I could choose to. Right. But I am not obligated to. Speak to that and the, um, the accusation of hypocrisy. Well... 
I think it's important, first of all, to just kind of take like a 30,000-foot view of hypocrisy. Okay. Because if you were to do that and kind of zoom out, you would realize that everyone is capable of hypocrisy. Everyone is a hypocrite. Exactly. So when I was growing up in my Muslim household, um, there were people who came in and they acted very devout. But then when my mother was out of the room, they would say awful things about my mother because she was Turkish and not uh, mm. didn't didn't speak Farsi. Right. Gotcha. So there's this this um, you know inherent hypocrisy, and everyone has blind spots, right? And you know, let's circle back to food. In Turkey, a lot of them will eat shrimp. A lot of them will eat shellfish. They won't eat pork. Hmm. Right, they'll eat shellfish, and they'll have conversations. And, and about just it. for clarity, for people who don't know, uh, both would be non-halal. Right, both are non-halal, same as, same as kosher. And can we also point out, just just a real aside, a quick aside here, that the secularist doesn't actually have any basis to say hypocrisy is a bad thing, because hypocrisy is essentially putting on different faces in different environments so that you succeed best, which is actually the pinnacle of evolution. Sure. Really? Sure. I, uh, I have a, a person I regularly interact with who, um, uh, a very kind of spiritual but very secular, uh, non-religious person here in Seattle and very, very um, vocal about COVID stuff. Right. Guess who got COVID hanging out with people at a party? And I, <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. But I was like, man, you have been so vocal about these idiots doing this. Why can't people do this? And everyone right. ended up getting COVID hypocritically hanging out at a party with people or whatever. Exactly. So, so anyways, yeah, just the, the 30,000 foot view. So 30,000 foot view, right? Everyone's capable of being a hypocrite. Um, and there are inconsistencies in everything. Um, and I think people use the hypocrisy thing as a deflective technique to be able to say, well, I don't have to really um, look at what you're saying at face value or do any research on it or, or you know, really get into it. Think deep more deeply than, right. than the Reddit feed. I right, at. right. Because I, I want to be right. And it's easier for me to call you a hypocrite than to um, – actually take a step outside of where and engage I am. with the substance of the conversation. Right. Sure. So, and as far as food goes or any of those things, I think it's hard to just narrow it down to just food. Okay. So, but, and this kind of dovetails in some of the other questions you, you had, um, the whole of the Torah, for instance, is creates, a. let's just, I'm going to, I'm going to go kind of mystical Judaism here for <laughs> you. Okay. If you start quoting the, the Kabbalah, we're, we're, we're leaving. Um, the connection to the Holy Spirit is what makes it come alive, mm. right? So when you read the Torah um, in the, you know, unsaved mind, right, the mind that doesn't, that, that isn't being renewed daily mm -hmm. by the Holy Spirit, it looks like a long list of stuff. That the you letter of the law. Right, the letter of the law. But when you dive into the Torah with the Holy Spirit and an open heart, you start to look at these things and say, okay, you know what, I understand that, um, I don't know. Uh, leprosy is bad, but I don't live in a world of leprosy. But when you zoom out of that chapter and take that 30,000 foot view of it, you're looking at it and saying, okay, there's, there are themes in that chapter that relate to holiness as a whole and cleanliness as a whole. And when you get into the history of the Jewish people, this stuff was going to be really important for them during the dark ages. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, God had the foresight to install a lot of those things. And when you talk talking about the separation of the Jewish people, right? So they were supposed to be separate, kadosh, completely other. That yep. means completely other. Um, you would look at them and say, well, why do they do things differently? But um, 
you know, it talks about it in the, in, the, in the dialogues that Solomon has when he's dedicating the temple. When these nations come mm-hmm. and look at you and say, why do you do these things? It's a reflection on the God who told you to do them, yeah. right? So, it's more of a flag. Sure. Right? I, I preached a sermon back, again, from Acts back in November where I talk about, you know, the Jewish people were called to be distinct and separated from the world for the specific reason of being that Abrahamic blessing to all the nations of the world. Right. It's hard to be a blessing to all the nations of the world right. when you're exactly the same as all the rest of the nations of the world and you don't get the attention, you don't get the, oh, I want I want something that you have so, as when you're distinct. So let's drop down to like 15,000 feet now, right? So for Christians and for people who believe and all that other stuff, you can look at it and say, all right, I'm supposed to be completely other. I'm supposed to be different. I'm not supposed to be someone who, and the New Testament is clear about this in, sure, in many yeah. places. Don't go out and carouse with those people. Yeah. Don't do the things that they do. Drunkenness. And right, allergies right, right. It's a rage. Sure, sure. I mean, even down to the way we process our emotions, oh, right? right? Like, don't be angry. Don't act out in anger, right? Don't um, let the sun go down. Don't on your wrath, yeah, right? Exactly. Be angry and don't sin, you know? Um, Trust God. Don't walk in unbelief, right? This is really kind of baseline stuff for believers. And I think, you know, if we're able to look at it from 30,000 feet and say, okay, I see themes, and then drop down to 15,000 feet when we have to do our low flights, right? Like kind of over the neighborhood and get to see the plane. Um, you, can, you can use that as a way to draw people in, right? Because that's why we're here. We're not here just so that God will know us. We're supposed to tell people about him. Right. Right? We're supposed to, you know, live the life, walk it, and be an example, and then have opportunities to tell people about this God who renews us and transforms us. That's so, good. So to kind of talk about some of what's happening here, right? So all these laws that seem peculiar, like one type of fabric, one type of crop in your field, one type of oxen, um, well, what happens, right? Somebody who's a non-Jew walks through the land of Israel and walks around and is like, huh, these people are wearing only one kind of fabric with tassels on. Uh, these people are playing with one kind of crop in their seal. These people are playing with one type of oxen. Where are all the temples? Wait, there's only one temple? Why? Because mm-hmm. there is one God. He has chosen this people and he is set apart and he is holy. Mm-hmm. And so w- one of the clues of this is that a lot of these um, sort of dietary laws and things like this don't have like criminal penalties, right? Right. It's not like if somebody eats pork 10 lashes... The, te- the penalty is you can't enter the temple. Right. right. Well, you're unclean. It's right? being fit right. for unclean. sacred space. I, I actually just, uh, right before the end of the year, I read a book called Jesus and the Forces of Death. I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head. It was phenomenal just talking about the way that the like there's moral laws, but all of the purity and impurity laws. Right. Uh, you don't offer sacrifices for those. You are washed for those. Right, it's like a, right. it's a it's a being fit to be That's in good. the presence of holiness Himself. Yeah, and right. so, a really good book. As an aside, if people want to read uh, something on that, I've, I'd, I'd sent Matt actually a couple of PDF chapters of it. One of my favorite books I've read in the last few years about just helping to understand the Old Testament, Jesus and the forces of death. Anyways. But yeah, there's that idea of like walking in and seeing, oh, this is different. This is not what I'm used to, right? Well, yeah, and you want that, right? So the way that we boil it down as Christians is to say, you know, love one another as I've loved you, right? By this, they will know that you're my disciples. And, you know, we're supposed to generate that love between one another, and it's supposed to be attractional. People are supposed to be drawn to it. So, 
you know, I think the hard part when we start saying, okay, um, you know, dietary laws, like I was convicted early on in my walk that I was supposed to do these things. I don't eat shrimp. Um, I don't eat pork. It was actually this little kind of six month window after I became a believer. Um, and you know, when the, I actually felt that conviction over a box of shrimp fried rice, <laughs> right? like that's not for you. That's and I said, um, I, that wasn't God. And I went to go eat it some more. And, and then I, you choked. No. <laughs> and I just really felt like, you know, there was a moment where I just kind of put it down and it's only happened to me a few times. And it was just clear, like, this is God. Mm. It happened when I was saved. It happened over the shrimp fried rice. <laughs> it happened when I met my wife. Right. Nice. Like it was just these kind of key moments. Jesus, where, your wife, right. shrimp fried rice, <laughs> right. the big, the big right. three. The big three. The big three. It always comes so, up. So, you know, for me, it was calling, right? Yeah. It was something that, you know, I, I would be ministering. Because you are not of Jewish no. ethnicity. No. Right. So, no. so you as a Gentile. Right. But you felt that compelling leading of the Holy Spirit say, nope, I am going to opt in on this and I'm going to minister in this context. Right. I mean, calling from the Holy Spirit. I actually never really felt like I had another choice. Mm. You know, it was just, I got saved in a Messianic synagogue and every time I thought about leaving, I was the only person under 30 there for a long time. Wow. And I was like, there's no people my own age. You know, it looks so, <laughs> those kids are having so much more fun on that playground. <laughs> like, you know, I want to go over there. And I just felt very clearly that the Lord kept me where he kept me so that he could um, kind of take me by a route that he wanted me to uh, go on. So, Well, on that, so, okay, so going back to maybe the 15,000 foot view for a moment, James, you've brought up the analogy of not sowing two different kinds of seeds in your field, right? And we might look at that and say, okay, none of us in this room are farmers. Mm-hmm. Best I know. Maybe you're, are you an urban chicken farmer? I don't know. No. no? Okay. My so, parents were though. All right. Well, none of us are farmers. So I don't really have any opportunity to obey or disobey that particular specific law, right? Like at the, at the detail level, I don't have a field. Mm-hmm. I'm never planting seeds. I don't have that opportunity. But when you can kind of zoom out a little bit, and, and my point, um, uh, in particular, uh, an author named Brian Rossner articulated this super well in his book called Paul and the Law, the idea of Torah as wisdom. Mm-hmm. So I don't have an opportunity to obey or disobey that particular law in the Torah, but what's, what's the wisdom behind that? Why would God tell his people not to sow two different types of seeds in the field? And a lot of people, you know, a lot of scholars will point out things like, overuse of the soil and depletion of the resources. And then I zoom out and I think, okay, is there anywhere in my life or in our culture where people overuse their resources and deplete the resources and don't leave margin and don't practice discipline? Well, now all of a sudden that particular law has a new type of relevance to my mm-hmm. life when I look at it through the lens of wisdom. So James, when you're talking with, with, you know, in your evangelistic type of conversations, do you ever kind of lean into that side of things? How is it received? I, I think that there's a valid application there, but there's the place I'd go first if I'm having a conversation with someone about this and they challenge me on the hypocrisy. Here's how I share the gospel using this, right? So I would talk about the principles of uncleanness is there's things in the world. It's not just that we do things that are sinful, it's that sinful things happen to us, we're exposed to things and they kind of cling to us, right? right. And so the Bible is... Yeah, it may have some wisdom things. It's primarily concerned about sin and the things that break us and destroy destroy our souls, right? 
Um, and there's a lesson there, right? So all these things in the in 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 the Torah make distinctions between okay the high priest and the rest of the priests, the priests and the rest of the people of Israel, the people of Israel and the Gentiles, right? right? And so if you had leprosy, you could not go to the temple. If you were in menstruation, you could not go to the temple. Right. If you touched a dead body, you couldn't go to the temple. Not because menstruation or touching a dead body are sinful, right? But they're you're coming. It's the it's death. It's the presence of mortality. Right, right, right. right. And, and in the same way, if you were a Gentile, you could not enter the, the in, enter the sort of sanctuary um, because of the unclean things that you were exposed to, right? Now, but here's and here's what things happen happens in the New Testament. Jesus says that he's the new temple. So when he touches somebody with leprosy, he doesn't become unclean, yes. they become clean. Yeah. Um, when, uh, when he touches a woman, when a woman who's been menstruating nonstop for 14 years touches him, yeah. he doesn't become unclean, she becomes clean. Uh, when Jesus touches a dead body, he doesn't become unclean, the dead body comes back to life. Right. So cool. Yeah, um, that, was, that was a big theme in that book. Jesus and the forces of death that I mentioned. Yeah. So here's, and here's the great news. When, he, when Jesus touches us as unclean Gentiles who have been separated from God, all this filth from the world clinging to us, we don't make him unclean. He makes us clean. It's so good. Right. So you, you've been exposed to these things in the world that have marred your soul. Yeah. And you can come to Jesus for cleansing. Yeah. Right. That is the purpose of these things. Right. Um, so for sure learn lessons about agriculture and practical things that are sort of from this. But more than that, learn the lesson of distinctions of holiness and how you and every yourself right. are not holy and clean and you can come to get cleansing. I mean, COVID itself gives us such an incredible opportunity to put some more meat on that bone, right? This whole right. idea like clean versus unclean. So, you know, <clears throat> we all have to wear masks. We all have to social distance. If somebody comes into, not only uh, if they actually contract COVID, but if you have had an exposure and my wife works at a school where she has to know all these rules really well, but like an exposure is unmasked within six feet of each other uh, for more than 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's a fairly high bar for what counts as an exposure. But if you are exposed, mm -hmm you then have to quarantine for 10 days because you now potentially carry around the forces of COVID in your body. Like all of that sort of stuff, like our culture is getting a crash course in clean versus unclean sort of laws. Right. Uh, and so all of a sudden they don't seem so silly or ridiculous anymore. They don't so, seem so foreign or strange because right. you've, you know, Oh, I, there's a dead body. I can't touch it. And I read certain rabbinic resources like, well, don't even go within 10 feet of the dead body so that you don't accidentally stumble and trip and touch the dead body. Like there's the fences within the fences, fences sort of within, stuff. Right. So again, you know, it's, it's maybe, I mean, I think for us as believers, you have a gift from God all of a sudden, like, oh, those things used to seem kind of weird or strange or ridiculous. They don't anymore because the forces of COVID are among us and we're trying to stay clean and separated from them. And it's very similar in the Torah, this idea of the forces of death, right? That's right. a corpse, right. leprosy, and blood, or, or <laughs> body fluids in, in, in general, because male emissions are, are part of that as well. None of those things are inherently sinful. Mm -hmm. They're not morally wrong, but they're a reminder of our mortality and right. that Jesus came to bring life and light and immortality into the world. And so, like, there's a, there's a, there's a whole... Uh, easy channel to open up to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and that. So that's a great reminder, James. That's good. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and so there's, and there's definitely some external wisdom there. Like, you know, when G G Jesus touches a dead body and comes back to life, it does not mean most of the time it's better to, 
be cautious around a dead body, right? <laughs> right. Like, it's like, I'm a Christian. I'm just going to go, you know, have a 15-minute lunch date with this corpse, right? It's right. <laughs> <laughs> you have other issues. That's a weird, yeah, I was going to say, there's, there's other things going on there. But, like, so, so, so the wisdom things, you know, there's the wisdom things to apply, but the, the spirit of the law is always about our relationship to God rather than simply... Just the practical wisdom. Just the practical wisdom. Yeah, and I actually even, you hear that about, like... Um, like the food laws, mm-hmm. I, most of the time growing up in a Christian context, I would mostly hear people say, well, God gave those laws to the Jewish people because pork and shellfish are more dangerous meats that carry, you know, parasites or whatever. Right. They have to be cooked more. They're, they're, and, and so it, was, it always stayed at that level of just practical wisdom. Sure. Which may be true, valid, good, whatever. That's fine. But oh, certainly valid. But, but it's kind of right. like related to the point in the sermon. I said, so yes, the Torah stands still to this day as wisdom for living. But even more important, the Torah stands as prophetic witness pointing forward to the right. coming of the Messiah, who fulfilled all of those laws perfectly, mm-hmm. who kept them all perfectly, who bore the penalty for us not keeping them mm-hmm. perfectly so that we might receive the blessings as though we had kept them all perfectly. Right. So that's the more important thing for us as Christians to say it all points to Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. Right. How do you how do you how do you talk about that? Actually specifically in a Jewish context, if you're talking to somebody who's Jewish but is not a believer in Jesus and the Messiah, is there a way that you can help orient conversations around Torah towards that prophetic witness towards Jesus? Well, I kind of, again, go back out to like 30 or 15,000 feet, depending on the person's level of observance. Um, This whole conversation reminds me of when I went to Capernaum, right? So in Israel, there's this place called Capernaum. It's all throughout the scriptures. Um, And it is one of the most beautiful places. Did you cast your nets on the other side of the boat is what I want to know. No, but I did go on a boat. Okay. (laughs) Did you sing, I'm on a boat? (laughs) Can't sing that there. I don't know it in Hebrew either. So um, they, on one side of Galilee, right at the Gal, the Galil, there's um, there's Capernaum, right, and all of the the places where Jesus was and where Jesus walked. And on the other side of the water, there's um, the Gadarenes. Right, so we're all familiar with the story of the Gadarenes. There was the, the demon possessed, the, the demon possessed man, and we are legion, and the whole thing. And every horror movie's been written off of right. that ever since. Right, it's a pretty scary story. Yeah, so when you go to both of these places, right, they are stark contrasts of one another, even in the architecture. Right, so the architecture that they used in in and and they're not that far away. It's like a half hour drive mm. around the lake, you know. Um, the stones that they use in Capernaum are bright stones. The temples are facing um, west, right? Not to the east, not where the sun rises. Wait, sunrise in the east? Whatever, yeah, whatever. right. Right. So they're not pointed at the sun. They're pointed away from the sun. You walk in away from the sun with the sun at your back because they don't want you to worship the sun, hmm. right? They don't want you to, to worship the things in heaven. But when you go around to the other side, everything's made out of this dark you know, really dark, like black, almost stone, right? And the temples are facing the sun, okay? And the two things that happen in these temples are very different. One is, um, you know, worshiping the Lord, you know, worshiping the God of Israel, and the other one is doing human sacrifice, right? Right? And they're a half an hour apart from each other. 
So the reason why you can look at these places uh, in the scriptures that talk about this distinction, okay, the nations around you do this, but you do this, right, is because of the, the, the concentration of idolatry and the different thing that God wanted to do in the Jewish people in the midst of all of this darkness. Prophetic significance, right? right. The people of God that we are exist in a fallen world that is dominated and ruled by sinful systems, right? This is, you know, we live in the adversary's territory. Sure. We live as aliens and temporary residents. We're, we don't have a claim to this world. We have a claim to the next one. Yeah. But we operate and exist in this sphere. We are exiles. Right, exactly. So when you look at the, the light that God was trying to bring into that region— through the Jewish people, observing his commandments with the hope that there would one day be a Messiah, a Redeemer. It goes all the way back to Jacob now, right? Like Jacob, Jacob's prophesying about this. It goes all the way into Genesis. Yep. There are places where the Messiah is prophesied. So this is an idea that is floating around Judaism for 5,700 plus years now, right? right? Like this idea that a Redeemer would come, and we believe that the Redeemer came already, and we also believe that he'll be coming back, Amen. right? And there's a deep, stark contrast of what happens in Capernaum, right, and what happens in Vegas. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right? And there's supposed to be a deep, stark contrast that happens sure. with, within us in yes. our daily interactions, yes. right, living with the hope that Messiah will return. And if you, you know, I don't want to get in the book of Revelation because anytime you have a conversation about the book of Re Revelation, it gets real and long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, we believe that the light will exit the world. There'll be a time when people's hearts get hard and cold and brothers will betray one another. And, you know, this is also spoken about all throughout the prophets and in the New Testament. Um, you know, there'll be a, a very dark time where there's an anti-Messiah and he'll lead people away. Yeah. And we are supposed to be God's people, right? In distinct, the midst of the, distinct in order to be a blessing. Right, yep. exactly. So it's the same principle. Right. It just keeps compounding itself, and it's the same theme that is repeated sure. over and over again in the Scripture. That's good. So when you look at fields, right, sure, there's a practical wisdom to it, right? But zoom out. Mm. The whole thing of your life, the whole scope of your life, as much as it's related to this idea of not putting, um, you know, things that compete with one another in a field, right, for resources, you know, you shouldn't do that in your own life. That's wisdom, right? Like right. I had a conversation with somebody and they were talking about how um, they were offered a job because the person who was originally offered the job wanted two positions within the company. <laughs> so he kind of cost himself both of them, yeah. right? And they were like, just pick a lane, dude. And he yeah. got ticked off and left, right? Yeah. He short-circuited his ability. Trying to plant two different types of seeds in his field, right? Right, like a right. practical element. Right, it's a yeah. practical element, but then on the other hand, when you zoom out, you know, I shouldn't have competing loyalties, mm. right? Like, Which I should... then points us to Jesus, because he said no one can serve two masters. Right. Yeah. you know what I mean? And, and, and watch this, watch this, right? Because Jesus says, the summary, all the law and the prophets hang on what? Love your Lord, you go with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? Right. And how... Which sounds like two, but it's one. Yeah. So. <laughs> but, but how... Shema the um, the, and, But then how will the world know that we're Jesus' followers? Because we love each other. Right. Right. Because we embody the essence of God's law yeah. in our lives with each other, and that makes us a shining beacon on a hill the world to see. Which brings me to one additional point of when we say our love for each other, 
our one of the other things we're battling against is that our culture has adopted a definition of love mm-hmm. that is non-confrontational to the extreme. So love only means the idea of acceptance or reassurance, mm-hmm. whereas we all know from practical experience that if a parent only took that type of love with their child, their child would end up dead. I love my child, but I can't affirm everything that they do. Exactly. Right. So right. so there's another element to that. Maybe that's for another conversation. I have the feeling that the three of us could go for probably about three or four hours sure. on this, and it turns into a Joe Rogan <laughs> podcast, and I didn't ask any of you guys for that. So I know there's a lot much more that could be said. I, I will recommend um, the two books that I, I really appreciated on this subject that have, have shaped my thinking over the last year, Paul and the Law by Brian Rossner. And then Jesus and the Forces of Death, and the author's name is Matthew Thiessen, or Thiessen, I think you pronounce it that way, T-H-I-E-S-S-E-N. Both of those books are really helpful. People want to dive in. They're both a little bit more scholarly, but still well-written and accessible. Um, Rabbi Ibars, thank you for giving up some of your time today to, to come and talk with us. James, thanks for raising the question. And I think maybe the point we're trying to say is this stuff is pretty complicated, but it's not beyond... It's, it's not outside of what Jesus will equip us to do. If we will con- commit ourselves to serious study of the scripture, to these types of conversations, to really wrestle with these things, then we can have conversations with non-believers where we don't have to go in with fear and, and, and trembling just to say, hey, let's talk about this. Can I, can I kind of give a parting anecdote here? Absolutely. Why this can be practically helpful. So one of the things that I noticed in the book of Joshua is that when the... Israelite soldiers go and attack Jericho. They actually have to wait outside the camp for three days and be cleansed, right? Because they've come into contact with dead bodies, with, with, with death, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, okay, what? Okay, what do I do with that in my life? And well, I was I was talking in a car. I was carpooling with a, a, spe, a, a with a marine who got honorably discharged after taking shrapnel to the shore in Afghanistan. And, you know, the, the war had messed him up in a lot of ways. And I, and it kind of came to me in that moment. It's like, look, so in the Old Testament, people who were exposed with war um, had to be cleansed before they could come back to the camp because they'd been, they'd been exposed to the filth and the evil of the world. They hadn't sinned. They were following God's command to be there, yet they still had to be cleansed from what they'd been exposed to because mm-hmm. that's what war does to you, right? Sure. So in, in that instance, there would have been a sacrifice made He'd have been cleansed with ritual water. But Jesus fulfills the law of sacrifices so that you go to him, you can receive cleansing for your soul. Mm-hmm. right? So by paying attention to the holiness code, I have equipping of a specific way Jesus can rescue somebody from the evil that they've experienced. Yeah, that's really good. And and <clears throat> I think the, the possibilities for that type of application are just endless. Right. So we have to help train our people to think, okay, what's the practical wisdom here? Mm-hmm. But then even above that, how does this point to Jesus and how he offers us redemption in, in these situations? So Right. Along with what you were saying, just my part, final parting thought, <laughs> you got to think <laughs> about it. A bunch of pastors and evangelists. <laughs> right. saying, I'm just, One more wait, thing. Hold on. I'm, a, uh, I'm wrapping uh, up right now. <laughs> so I'll be going for another 20 minutes. Um, it's a point of contact. So when you look back at the Old Testament, there is a temple there are sacrifices that are made and it's a point of contact, a moment that you can go and you can say, um, you know, I handed this sin over. I was cleansed. I was redeemed from this sin, you know, and now Jesus is our point of contact. Yes. Right. We go to Jesus directly 
without the sacrifices, without all of those other things. And we say, cleanse me, heal me, make me whole, and, you know, um, grow me, make yeah. me distinct. Right. A broken heart and a contrite spirit he will not deny. Amen. So that's good. Thank you, gentlemen, for doing this. I appreciate you bringing it up. And um, friends, if you listen to this, if you've made it this long, thanks again for, for joining us. I hope that this is helpful. I pray that this will, if, if nothing else, will lead to some more conversations and discussions in your small group and with other believers in your life so that you can be equipped to go share the good news of Jesus uh, with the world that needs to hear it. So signing off. Bye. Thanks, team.